And that evening, um, as we were having dinner, four guys armed with guns stormed into the house and tied us to the chairs. So this was this was an armed robbery. You know, they just wanted money. And I think I think I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I just I, I sat there thinking, does anybody see the irony in this? I mean Simon Pavey here calling to you from uh, sunny Wales and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. We got a good one for you today. Today's story is about Yolandi Rust or Joe. Starting out by bicycle, Joe inadvertently finds herself riding a motorcycle around Africa. Okay, um, so my name is Joe Rust. I'm from South Africa and I am an adventure rider. That's what I do. <laughs> Good morning, Joe, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Nice to, nice to be here. You are spending time riding around Africa, and, and that's probably very simplistic the way I'm saying that. But <laughs> you didn't start out riding a motorcycle, so let's begin right at the beginning. There must be something that drove this desire to travel in you. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, look, initially the idea was to cycle around Africa on my bike, on my bicycle. And this started about seven years ago. Um, when I, you know, say to myself, you know what, I want to do something big with my life. Life is short. We're always telling each other that you should live your dreams and, um, not have any regrets. And I said to myself, well, what's the biggest thing I can think of? And the biggest thing I could think of doing was to ride around Africa on my own. Um, and initially started out on a bike from South Africa. Uh, then I made my way up, started from Cape Town, and then went up the West Coast through Namibia and Angola. And this is where things changed in a big way. But but what, first, what made you think you could actually complete this? I mean, Africa is a huge continent, and you're actually going to ride a bicycle by yourself around the, the entire continent. What made you think you could pull that off? A spark of madness. I guess. <laughs> well, they say there is that fine line between bravery and um, insanity. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to tell sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> no, exactly. What, what did your friends and family say to you? Well, like, I, I did a couple of um, other cycle tours before. So uh, back in 2003, I cycled through Israel. Not that it's a huge country, but that was my first taste of adventure. Then came back to South Africa 
and absolutely loved, um, you know, cycling around and did a trip through South Africa. Then I did a trip around South Africa, uh, which was a pretty big one. And then I knew, you know, this is something I could do because those were all solo trips. Um, but still, I mean, this was all home, you know, on home ground. So it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, the big thing was that I was about to venture into what's perceived to be deep, dark Africa on my own, woman alone. Um, my family and friends, they know I'm nuts. So, I mean, this, this, it didn't really surprise them. <laughs> they've, they've always been very supportive um, because I think, you know, my dad always says he knows I can take care of myself, but he also knows that even if he told me not to do it, I would do it anyway. So he would rather just support me in whatever I do. <laughs> you got to this point in your bike trip where you had an incident which changed everything for you. And before we get to that, tell us a little bit about what it's like to cycle around. The similarities between the bicycle and the, and the motorcycle are obvious. But what was that like? What was your trip like? Well, the thing about being on the bicycle is, um, you know, something that I miss is the simplicity of it all. You know, you have the bicycle, you're basically the engine. And you carry whatever you need with you. So you're completely self-sufficient. Um, I carried, you know, a tin, sleeping bag, you know, stuff to cook food with and my clothes. And then obviously a lot of water because on, on the bike you need to drink a lot of fluid. Basically started off quite early in the morning, you know, with sunrise. I would break up camp and make myself some breakfast, then pack up, get on the road, cycle all day long for, you know, usually average of eight hours, and then find a spot on the side of the road again where I would pitch my tent and spend the night. So actually, I loved, um, like I said, the simplicity of it all. And the fact that it, it's a very cheap way of traveling. Um, it's tough. <laughs> it is It is quite tough, but um, I, I miss it every now and then. I miss the, the, the traveling on the bike. When you are loaded up and riding your bicycle along, do you have a different mindset than when you're riding a motorcycle? Um, not really. I think the main difference for me would be, you know, on, on the, the bicycle when it starts getting tough because, you know, when you're loaded and you start getting um, hectic uphills, I, how I dealt with that is having a kind of a mantra that I would just, I would, I don't know how to how to describe it really. I would go in a bit of a um, what what do I call it? Well, I had this thing that I would do is that I would just look down when I'm hitting an uphill. I would just glance up to see you know how far I am up the hill, but keep looking down and just keep pedaling until I get to the top. Where on on the bike on the motorcycle it's a bit different because um, it's easier. The engine's doing all the work. On the bicycle you're the engine. So uh, it's, it's physically, it's more tiring, it's more taxing. And you're doing the bicycle trip. You started that out sort of on the cheap. Obviously, you were looking to camp just on the size of the road. You weren't paying for camping. You weren't paying for accommodations. Um, you strictly financed this yourself as you went along? Yeah. When I started out, um, you know, I, I tried to get some sponsors for the trip around Africa, but nobody was biting. Um, looking back now, I can understand that. You know, it's, it's a pretty risky trip. Um, and I can understand why people thought that I was a bit nuts. So when I started out, um, I literally had the equivalent of probably $100. $100? Uh, in my bank account. 100 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I had no money um, and no sponsors willing to, to come on board. But I just inherently knew that if I waited until I had everything that I needed to do this trip, I might be waiting for the rest of my life. And I said to myself, you know, I know that this is something that I have to do. I just know with my whole being that this is what I have to do. So it was a complete leap of faith. And I took um, the equivalent of $100, my bike, my camping gear, and set off, um, trusting that somehow things would work out. That head-down determination you talked about for going up hills is clearly a mantra for life for you because it didn't stop there. You've, you've certainly had your share of obstacles thrown at you and persistence has paid off clearly in the long run, which we'll, listeners will find out as we go through this show. But you got on your bike. You made it how far before you had an incident? Uh, well, I started out from an, a town called Camps Bay in Cape Town, South Africa. And then... Uh, made it through Namibia up to Angola. I started out from a town called Camps Bay in Cape Town and then traveled up through Namibia and into Angola and got up to northern Angola, which was about three and a half thousand kilometers or the equivalent of, I think, about 2,000 miles approximately. And it took me about, well, I started in April. The incident was in September. So it was about five months five months of cycling up to Angola. So you only got, um, you know, a, a short distance really in the overall scheme of things of, of the distance you were looking to cover. And I think a lot of times when this sort of happens to people and they put it all out there and they, they have problems immediately, you sort of have to scratch your head and and, and say, wow, uh, maybe this isn't for me. But that's not what happened. So tell us, what was the incident? <laughs> so um, what happened was uh, fairly far up north in Angola, on my way to the Congolese border, um, I it was a Friday morning. I got on my bike and um, started off the day as I usually do. Uh, difference being that I was I was really sick. I actually thought that I might have malaria, and I tested myself that morning, and the test was negative. Um, and I decided, well, I'll just you know carry on slowly, and see how far I get. And uh, a truck pulled up next to me and four guys got out, out of the truck. You know, it was normal for people to stop on the side of the road and want to talk to me um, because it's a bit of a, I guess, an unfamiliar scene for them to see a girl on her own traveling through Angola. And these guys approached me and it wasn't until they took out um, some knives that I realized that they don't just want to have a chat. And um, they said to me in French, they told me, you know, that um, to give them my, 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 my belongings, my bike and my, you know, my kit, which I duly did because I knew I, I was outnumbered. So I gave them my things and kind of ran away into the bush. And um, but what happened next was was the, the amazing part. These guys, they come up and they pull knives on you. I mean, it, it's got to be terrifying. <laughs> I luckily... I don't know. I'm very calm in stressful situations. So when this happened, um, you know, I realized, okay, maybe if I just give them what they want, they'll leave me alone. And luckily they did. They didn't touch me at all. So I gave them these things and I just ran off. And did you throw them down on the ground or something to try and distract them while you take off? <laughs> no, I just, I just, I just <laughs> took off. <laughs> you just turn and run. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I- 
And it doesn't run through your head that they're going to chase after you if you try and take off? Well, yeah, they, there was that possibility, but they were pretty inebriated. So I, I could um, I could see that they'd probably been to a party the, the, the evening before or something, or maybe even that, I don't know. Um, so I, I didn't so, so now you're in, would... in the bush. Yeah. yeah. Now you're in the bush hiding from these guys. Um, you, they've taken your bike. They've taken your mode of transportation. You, you have no money. You're well far away from home at this point. What do you do? <laughs> um, luckily, I still had my camelback on my back. Um, so I had my, my passport and my phone in my pack. And I then phoned a friend of mine um, in Luanda, which is the capital of the country, uh, not realizing that he was actually quite well connected. He then phoned the local chief of police in that area. Um, and he in turn phoned the local governor, uh, who's the governor of the, that province in the north is called the Zaire province. And next thing I knew, the, it was like the whole country just erupted in chaos. Um, so next thing, my phone rings, and it's the governor. He got my number from my friend, and he says to me, just stay where you are. Um, we've sent a vehicle with the police. They're coming to pick you up, and then they will take you back to the nearest town, and make sure you're safe. Meantime, um, he tells me that they've sent, they've deployed two helicopters from um, Luanda, from the capital. And, and I'm just standing there on the side of the road thinking, seriously? Guys, it's just a bike. <laughs> <laughs> but it had to be an amazing feeling of relief. I mean, you've just had everything stolen. You've made one phone call. Next thing you know, the governor calls you back. That's got to leave you sort of gobsmacked. <laughs> Yeah, uh, totally. And it, well, it's like something that only happens in movies, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, this is insane. But, you know, true enough, the, the police arrived. They, you know, put me in a vehicle, take me back to the nearest town, um, put me up in a hotel. They cordon off the entire town. Nobody is allowed in or out um, until the governor arrives in his little private plane. And then he comes and talks to me and says to me, okay, what's going to happen next is you're coming back with me to my um, residence, which was way up in the north of the country. And then I would stay there for the weekend whilst the two helicopters that they'd sent out um, search for these perpetrators. This tells me that that there's there's one of two things that, that's gone on here. One, either there's no crime in the country at all, and they're so shocked by the fact that something actually happened that they, they jump right on it. Or there's, there's some sort of political agenda there where they're concerned because you're from another country, you're from South Africa, you're traveling through, maybe it's because you're a woman on your own. There's something there that they're saying, whoa, this can't happen. Did you ever find out what it was? Well, um, the thing is how it works in Angola is that every governor is responsible for everything that happens in his province. So if something bad happens, the onus is on the governor to sort it out. And um, plus, you know, we as South Africa have quite have a bit of a history with Angola, um, you know, stretching back to the Civil War. Uh, so there's that history, the fact that Angola, um, I think the main thing was they didn't want any bad press because it really is an, it really is an awesome country. Um, and an incident like this could really just 
go downhill so quickly and um, you know create a lot of bad press for them. So. Yeah, I see they have a lot of parks in the country. Is it a destination for tourism? Um, I think, I would say the coastline is more of a, a, a tourist attraction. Um, they do have parks in the country, like in the east, uh, but it's not really a place for tourists at the moment. Uh, because of the Civil War, there's still areas that have, um, you know, quite a few landmines um, that haven't been cleared. So there are some zones in the country where you're still not really allowed to go. And here you are having dinner with the governor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here I am having dinner with the governor. Um, and I stayed with him for two days. Got to know him a bit. A uh, wonderful man. He was a general in the army. So he treats me really well. Put me up in his home. And after two days of the helicopter searching for these guys that took my things. They came up empty-handed, and then the governor said to me, well, you can now decide where you want to go. I said to him, well, um, I would like to return home. So they put me on the plane, and I then returned to South Africa. The trip has been scuttled at this point. Your bike is stolen. Great treatment, obviously, from the governor, but you're back at square one again. So this is the point where I think a lot of people say, okay, well, this isn't working. I'm going to go do something else. But what did you do at that point? Yeah, so this is the point where I think a lot of people said, um, well, you know what, kudos for trying out, uh, but maybe you should get you know, think about getting a real job now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I decided that I want to start over and I want to do things a bit differently. This time, I think I would like to start over on a motorcycle. Um, the, the interesting thing was that I had never been on a motorbike before in my life. Yet, I, I just knew that I wanted to start over on a motorbike. I think it was because I think I had this feeling of, you know, there's got to be an easier way of doing this. <laughs> was there inspiration for the motorcycle? Did you see other people traveling on them and think, oh, well, that looks like a, a better mode of travel? Or, or did you see something, uh, you know, in, in the press? Or was there some sort of spark that led you away from the bicycle to the motorcycle? Or is it just a, a natural uh, transition? Um. It was strange. It was very much a natural transition. It's not like I saw um, other travelers or overlanders on motorbikes. It was just this thought that I had when I was standing on the side of the road and these guys disappeared with my bicycle or my kit over the horizon. And I was contemplating, you know, well, I can now either, you know, change to walking around Africa uh, or I could return home and just start over. And I just thought to myself, well, you know, I, I think I should start over on a motorbike. And that's, um, you know, and that thought, that just stuck. I knew that that's what I had to do. And you're at home now and you've got this thought of, okay, it's great. I'd like to ride a motorcycle around, which is going to mean even more money. You're going to have to buy a motorcycle and pay for fuel and all the other things that are associated with a, a motor vehicle. So what do you do from there? Exactly. Then I realized, okay, a motorcycle means I'm going to need a lot more money. You know, now we're talking fuel, we're talking more paperwork. Um, I'm finding out I need a carnated massage for the bike. Uh, you know, it's, it's, all, it's parts, it's, um, you know, tires. It's, and I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? Um, I mean, I didn't have money to begin with. Um, so how am I going to pull this off? 
And then uh, the next miracle happens and I get a Facebook message from the minister of local government in um, Angola. <laughs> a Facebook message. A Facebook message. <laughs> this is just bizarre. You get a phone call on your cell phone from the governor and now you get a Facebook message from, from, from uh, the governor? <laughs> from a minister. From a minister, wow. Yeah. So from a minister, I get... <laughs> I get a Facebook message um, saying we're very sorry for what happened. Um, and, you know, if there's anything we can do to help you, just just let us know. And I'm thinking this is so weird. So I, <laughs> I reply and um, I say to him, you know, thank you very much. Um, and actually, uh, I'm thinking of starting over on a motorbike. And I say to him, you know, would... Do you think the Angolan government might consider getting involved in any way or supporting, um, you know, my my trip? And he then says to me, well, you know, send us a proposal in a budget. So I quickly um, crunch some numbers and work out a budget for the entire trip. And this is all inclusive. So this is for buying the bike. Uh, it's to cover all the fuel costs. It's visas. It's the, the car name for the bike. It's, um, you know, everything included, send him the budget and a proposal, um, thinking, <laughs> you know, this is mad. In what world is, a, is another country going to sponsor, um, you know, this, this crazy dream of a girl who wants to go around Africa? Yeah, yeah, you have to know at that point you're wasting your time, right? But I mean, it's a, it's like a shot in the dark, a lottery ticket. You're thinking, okay, I, I know it's, this is stupid, but I'm going to do it anyway, Exactly. So I'm thinking, you know what, I've got nothing to lose, so I might as well just go all out. And um, I send off this proposal and the budget to the minister. And two weeks later, I'm sitting at home and I receive an email. Now we've transitioned from Facebook to email. And he, <laughs> he sends me an email um, and I nearly fall off my chair. And uh, one of my friends was actually sitting at her desk right across from me. And I'm just screaming. And she's like, what is going on? And the email says, um, basically, yes, the Angolan government will sponsor my entire trip. Oh, my God. That is amazing. That had to seem surreal. Did you check the email to make sure that it was legitimate <laughs> <laughs> at that point and think, like somebody's playing with me? <laughs> no, it was insane. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was I was shaking. I was so excited. Um, that's exactly at that moment. I knew that when I left with that hundred dollars, with the knowledge that this is just something that I have to do. When I got that email, I knew that I was right. Yeah, that's an incredible testament for the leap of faith, because that's really what you're doing. I can hear it the way you're saying it. You're saying that you, you just knew there was a way. In other words, you had no idea how it was going to happen, but you knew there was, the, that there had to be a way. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it, it comes to fruition for you. You now have the government saying, at least, they're going to cover all of your expenses. At this point, do you just uh, arrange finances and run out on a shopping spree and, and sort of get yourself mm -hmm. going? <laughs> well, um, first thing was to figure out what bike I wanted to do this on. So I started doing some research and uh, reading up on online forums about you know different kinds of motorcycles. Like I said, I'd never been on a motorcycle before, so I had no idea. I I really I was such a novice um, 
I started reading up on different overlanding sites online, and it basically came down to three potential bikes. Right back then, it was between a, a Kawasaki KLR, uh, a Honda Africa Twin, and a BMW 650 Dakar. And in the end, I took the BMW. Uh, the BMW being the more expensive bike, but probably all three of them equally suited. What was your decision to go with the BMW over the others? Well, what actually happened was um, first I bought the, the KLR um, because, you know, I said to myself, it has to be a bike that is easily maintainable that I can work on, um, on by myself knowing that, you know, I might get in a situation where I find myself in the middle of nowhere and I have to fix a flat or um, have to service the bike. And it has to be light enough so I can pick it up. Um, not that not that any of them are that light. Uh, but I got a, a KLR first, but then I had some trouble with that bike. And I just lost faith in the bike. And that's when I switched to, to BMW. Um, the BMW had always been my first choice, but because it was, like you said, the more expensive um, bike out of the three, I thought I would try one of the others first. I ended up with the with the BMW anyway. And that was a good choice overall. It was, I think, in the end, it was the perfect choice for me. Um, you know, now looking back, I know that it was the perfect bike for this trip. Now you've got your motorcycle, you've got that sorted out. How do you figure out what gear you're going to take and how you're going to equip your bike? Yeah, so um, I'm writing on all the, the online forums. I'm asking questions and I figure out, okay, I need a luggage system. So now I've got the bike. I get a luggage system. Um, I've got, I, oh, by now, um, the Angolan government, they notified me that they actually found my gear. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yes. so at this point, they're going to yank their money back and give you your bicycle and so say, I'm yeah, thinking, off you go. I'm thinking, no. <laughs> now, I'm so, now I'm really liking the idea of going on the motorcycle, right? <laughs> right. Um, and they tell me that, you know, they're so happy they found my all my kits, my bicycle and all my kits. Um, and I say to them, well, I've already bought the bike. <laughs> <laughs> they had no they had no issue with it they were like no we just want to know where to send your stuff to i'm like oh okay cool so they sent you your bike and your kit back yes. so you've got everything back and you've got the world at your feet <laughs> so i get all my kit back um i don't have to go out and buy another tent or outdoor gear or anything um sleeping bag they they got everything back um <laughs> they send me back my kit and my bicycle um, I leave the bicycle at home, start a bike, and then I'm on my way. <laughs> so you're all loaded up. You, you've got your gear. What's your route plan for this when you started out? You must have had a, your rough route figured out in your mind because you would have to do your, your carnet and figure out you know, what you needed for that uh, for the different countries you're going through. Are you going clockwise, counterclockwise, or was there something specific, uh, a route specific that you were, had in mind? Yeah, so the plan was I wanted to go clockwise. I did not have a route plan. I well, I had no idea of what the the roads might look like. Um, I did some reading up on you know a few ride reports um, of people that had come down and up the west coast, east coast of Africa, 
And I then found out, because I read a lot on um, on the hub, on Horizons Unlimited. That was a lot of information on there. And that's how I figured out that I need a Kahane for the bike for Egypt. Um, and for some of the other countries, got an international license. So, so at this point, you don't have your motorcycle driver's license, just a driver's license. So you've got to go get your license. Yes. So I made an appointment went for a few lessons, riding lessons, um, and then got my driver's license two weeks before I started the trip, or, well, relaunched. And then made my way back down to Cape Town and then relaunched the trip from the most southern point of Africa, which is Cape Agulhas, right at the tip. You're ready to start your trip. You're a brand new rider. And anyone who has ridden a motorcycle has went through the the painful process of learning how to ride and knows how stressful that can be. But here you are about to embark on a journey around Africa with two weeks under your belt. Did that not unnerve you a little? <laughs> Again, spark of madness. <laughs> um, I, I think what helped me a lot was my experience on the bicycle, on the mountain bike, because that gave me, you know, the balance I needed on the motorbike, so it wasn't it wasn't too unnerving for me. Um, what was very different is obviously the bike's much heavier, with with all the kit. Um, being a female rider, I did load up everything plus the kitchen sink at the beginning. <laughs> I was looking at my bike. I'm like, <laughs> I've got a lot of stuff on there. And I'm thinking, I wanted something that I can pick up. There's no way that I'm going to be able to pick that up. (laughs) But I just figured, you know what, I would just figure it out as I went along. Out of Cape Town, you're headed up through Namibia again and into Angola. Was there a big um, stop in Angola where you met up with the the officials from the government again? (laughs) Yeah. When I re-entered Angola, uh, the minister that I had been, that sent me the Facebook message initially, um, you know, said to me, when you get back in the country, please notify us so we can give you an armed escort. So now I wasn't allowed to travel in the country without an armed escort. Um, when I got to the border, uh, there was some miscommunication, and I then notified the minister that I would continue to the first town um, and then stay with friends for the evening and meet up with the police the next morning. I then, um, you know, met up with these friends of mine and notified the local chief of police and the governor of that province down in the south where I was staying uh, with these friends of mine. And that evening, um, as we were having dinner, four guys armed with guns stormed into the house and tied us to the chairs. <laughs> this is your welcome back. <laughs> this is my first night back in Angola. <laughs> wow. So this was this was an armed robbery. It was um just you know, they just wanted money. And I think no. I think I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I thought look, I thought it was hilarious, although it's not funny at all. Um <laughs> I just, I, I sat there thinking, does anybody see the irony in this? I mean, 
don't, don't tell me they got your bike and your kid. <laughs> no, they didn't. Somehow I knew they wouldn't take the bike. But um, so these <laughs> these four guys, so they were standing there. They taped us to the chairs. Um, and then the <laughs> the local chief of police and the governor, luckily, um, had come to welcome me back into Angola and to just check on me. Very lucky for us because these guys were quite aggressive. And like I said, they were armed with guns. And, and the one guy had a gun pointed right at my head. And there was a moment where I thought, you know, this is it. It's the end. And um, right then, the police, the chief of police with the governor in tow, then arrived at the gate outside the house. And these four guys took off. Um, and when... <laughs> When they came into the house, there we are, sitting taped to the chairs. And I'm like, hi, guys, I'm back. (laughs) 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 And the the chief of police, he's this big guy, you know, just comes over to me and he gives me this huge hug and he says, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my first night back in Angola. And from that day forward, I'm not allowed to travel in Angola without at least two armed escort vehicles. <laughs> is Angola a tough country to travel in? Is it very dangerous for the average person? <laughs> or is it just you? It's just me. <laughs> just don't travel with me. No, this is the thing. And I hate telling these stories, actually, because Angola is a very beautiful country. And the people are extremely friendly. But... I had these incidents and I'm like maybe one out of a hundred people that would have these experiences. <laughs> but now when I tell these stories, people, I think people must think that, you know, just don't go there. Um, but I always, you know, I always make sure to, to tell people, you know, it's, it really is a fantastic country. Um, it's very beautiful. It is one of my favorite countries, and it's not just, I'm not just saying it because I'm biased and because they um, they were my main sponsor on the trip. It, it really is a country that I would go back to, um, you know, as, as often as I can. I'm not too sure if they want me there, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, I love it. I really do love it there. Yeah, that, that's tough. I mean, they probably look at you like, um, you know, having to hold on to their great great grandmother's china or something. You know, it's, it's it's great to have, but they really don't want the responsibility of having it there in case anything goes wrong. And so <laughs> that's probably why you have the instructions now. You're not passing through without an escort. Well, you know, the awesome thing is I now get lots of um, messages, mails from people who have traveled to Angola, overlanders, saying to me, you know, we were received by the police in Angola and we had such a fantastic time and they looked after us so well. And they say to us, it's because of you. And and then I say to people, you know what? I see it as my sole duty to travel to countries and get robbed so you may be safe. (laughs) I think it's the way you say it, the way you tell the story, too. You see certain things in the experience. I mean, like you say, when you're being robbed, usually when someone tells a story like that, and we don't, we tend to not focus on those stories because they aren't yeah. um, the entire trip. Yeah. They tend to be a real tiny spot. But yeah. in your case, it really it tells the story. 
And I think it's the way you look at the situation. Most people will remember that in gory detail. But what you're remembering is sitting there thinking of the irony in this. Like, this is just unbelievable. It's almost laughable, even though you've got these armed guys there. Yeah. So I think there's something in your story and the way you tell it and the way you remember it mm-hmm. that makes it a, a different type of story, a different type of tragedy story. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, in you know, in the end, it's all about how you um, decide to handle stuff in life in general, isn't it? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's clear that you have the the right outlook for that. So after your incident here in Angola, where do you go? So yeah, so um, after that incident, I now have two armed vehicles with me and I'm being (laughs) escorted through Angola. And I'm literally like a package that they're carrying from town to town. And the local chiefs of police have to actually sign me over. So they have actual paperwork. And they're handing me over from one chief of police to the next. But I'm having a ball of a time because I have all these guys with me, um, making my my way up to up to the Congo. And then I go from Angola, the most northern point, to Soyo. So from there, I take a ferry to Kabinda. The very nice thing is the governor, who initially came to my rescue, then um, flies out to the town where we met the first time. Um, and puts up a whole spread, a lunch spread, um, welcomes me back in, you know, to Angola. And then the next day flies, well, he flies back to his to his residence. Next day flies back out to this town called Soil, right up in the north, puts me up in a hotel there, organizes for my bike to go on the ferry to go to Cabinda, which is Angolan territory, and sends his personal assistant with me to make sure that I'm safe. Wow. So he really is nice. such a gentleman. Yeah. He really is such a decent person. Um, then I make it to Kabinda. From there, I cross into the Congo. And then this is now, you know, this is the furthest I have ventured on the trip. And I'm feeling quite ecstatic. Um, from the Congo, I make my way up to Gabon. And this is uh, one of the first big. Uh, checkpoints on my list on the trip because then I get to cross the equator for the first time. So make it up into Gabon and uh, cross the equator. So yeah, I made it to Gabon and then from there I crossed into Cameroon. And then, uh, you know, it was the next point where I felt a bit nervous because um, I was now about to cross into Nigeria. And, you know, this is one of the let's say, one of the high-risk countries that I was to travel through on my on my route. And um, a lot of my friends and people that now started following me were very concerned about my traveling through Nigeria on my own. Um, I was very lucky. I met up with a friend of mine in Cameroon, um, and he, he was actually so concerned about my safety that he... He hired a, a guy on one of the local little motorcycle taxis to take him with me to the Nigerian border. So he wanted this guy to take him all the way to the Nigerian border just to make sure that I was safe, which is very sweet. You mean you, you mean right through Nigeria or to the just getting into it? Well, just just to the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we got to the border, so it was very sweet of him. So these two guys on the bike rode with me um, all the way to the border. And then when we got to the Nigerian border, he said to me, um, he thinks they should cross uh, into Nigeria, 
and stay there for the first night and, you know, just to make sure that I'm okay. And the guy who was, you know, the, the taxi driver, rider, uh, looked at him <laughs> absolutely horrified and he said, I'm not going to Nigeria. Are you crazy? It's dangerous. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you think I'm supposed to feel? <laughs> <laughs> if you're standing here absolutely horrified about the idea of you know, <laughs> crossing into Nigeria. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then I, so at, the, at that point, do you rethink things and think maybe I'm not seeing the writing on the wall that everybody else is? <laughs> well, I, I will admit that I was really nervous about um, you know crossing into Nigeria now. And when I got to the border, I had a visa for uh, my visa was I think for two weeks. And when I got to the border, the uh, one of the customs officials said to me, "Well, we got to customs, immigration." And then they said to me, um, "So it was a lady that was." looking at my passport and she said to me, okay, I see you have a two week visa. Um, I'm going to give you 24 hours to ride through Nigeria. So they reserve the right to, you know, change, uh, the, the visa. So even if you have, now why, why would she do something like that? Why would she change it? Um, I don't know. So, I mean, I say to her, I, I showed her the, the motorcycle and I say to her, look, I have to ride. Um, across the country with that. So if you had to do that, could you do that in 24 hours? And she looked at the bike and um, you know looked at me and then she said to me, okay, I'll give you three days. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, okay, fine. You know what, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. Fine, give me three days. And three days is enough? Ostensibly, yes, it is. You're not going to see anything, but you're going to rush. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But um, I, I thought to myself, you know what, this is, this is Africa, this is Nigeria, I'll get something sorted, it's okay. Um, but what I started doing by now was I, I had a thought, you know, I realized there's, obviously there are motorcycle clubs in these different countries. And um, the penny dropped and I realized, you know what, the moment I got on a motorcycle, I automatically became a member of the biggest family on earth. And I started thinking, well, what if I, you know, contacted the local motorcycle club so I could at least have a point of contact in these different towns? Because let's, I mean, let's be honest, there were some dodgy areas we'd be traveling through. If I needed help, I'd have someone that I could contact. So I started contacting, you know, doing some research before I entered a country and to see if they had any motorcycle clubs. So then you make contact with a local club and you say... Uh, it would be great to maybe, you know, meet up when I'm in your town or, you know, it's just so I have someone to contact in the case that I need help. Um, but what I didn't realize is, again, I was so lucky because, like, in Nigeria, for instance, they have a big biking community and these guys the first town that i stopped in was calabar and um the local motorcycle club took me and they put me up in a fantastic guest house you know made sure that i didn't need anything um made sure i had food washed the bike uh you know looked after me for a few days i say to them look i have an issue with my visa and they're like don't worry about it in lagos the guys will sort you out um you know, made my way across Nigeria. The guys from Lagos actually rode out um, to Benin City, which is 
you know, it's a long way out. It's, I, I guess it was about two or three hours ride. And uh, met up with me and then escorted me into Lagos, put me up in a penthouse of a hotel um, and had me there again for a few days and just looked after me, took me around town. And it was fantastic. And I realized, well, this is awesome because I'm getting to connect with local people, getting to see, you know, uh, how people live. And this is exactly what I was looking for. So it was really, really cool. But you're, you're beyond your visa at this point. Are you not sweating it from, from that? I mean, when you, when you went into Calabar, you're at the, you've just passed the border basically. And then yeah. uh, Lagos, I guess you're right at the other border. Yeah. I mean, you're to the point now where you're going to have to check out and they're going to say, Hey, you're on an expired visa. Yeah. Well, like I said, um, you know, the guys in Calabar said to me, don't worry about it. They'll sort you out in Lagos. So when I got there, I told the guys, you know, I have an issue with my visa. And they said to me, don't worry about it. It's fine. And <laughs> the one morning, one of the guys came and picked me up and he said, okay, let's go sort out your visa. And um, I had my passport. We got in a car, uh, drove to, uh, I don't know, a nondescript street, little alleyway and stopped with the car and a guy got in the back seat he asked me for my passport and a hundred dollars gave him my passport and a hundred dollars he gave it to this guy who then handed it to another guy um the other guy then obviously had the stamps needed and (laughs) and then gave me like a month visa (laughs) renewed my visa (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> handed me back my passport and well Bob's your uncle sorted <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be a strange way for the government to do business uh, are you comfortable talking about that <laughs> in case anybody else picks this up <laughs> well the thing is everyone knows about it so I'm not sure whether it's actually okay to talk about it <laughs> Uh, well, I see. It's just one of those things. Okay. I mean, that's what's so intriguing about Africa, isn't it? It's yeah. just, it's so different than, of course, what we're used to here being North America. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, this is the thing about um, traveling in Africa. You have so many countries to go through, so many borders to cross, and, and each one of them, almost all of them are asking for the carnet? Um, not all of them. Actually, some of the borders, actually, they didn't even know what a carnet is. But I had them, I made them stamp it anyway, just in case, uh, just so I didn't have any issues. Uh, there was, since we're in Nigeria, actually, next next um, country was Benin. And when I got to this border, the police said to me that uh, uh, they asked me for 30,000, I think it was Sefa, uh, so it's um, Central African francs. Or to stamp my carnet, and I said to him, "No, um, there must be a mistake. I don't have to pay you to stamp my carnet." And this is one of the first incidents where I wasn't sure. You know, is he trying to, um, you know, just get some money off me, or do I actually have to pay him for this? But I was adamant that I don't have to pay for it. And eventually, um, he showed me to customs where I could have it stamped and when I got to this office I walked into the office and there were four guys in this little little shack of an office um, two of them were watching soccer on a television one guy was on Facebook on a computer and um, the guy who's obviously supposed to be heading up this office was sleeping on his desk um, 
<laughs> so I said to the guys, I need to have my carnet stamped. And they kind of pointed to the guy who's sleeping behind the desk on his arms, lying on his arms. And um, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to wake him up. So I duly wake him up and um, say to him, you know, sir, I'm terribly sorry to disturb you, but I need to have my carnet stamped. He didn't even know how to, um, you know, fill out the carnet. So in the end, I filled out the carnet, showed him where to sign, showed him where to put the stamp. And, you know, that, that was basically it. And said, thank you. And uh, when I walked out, they gave me a soft drink. And I was like, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and no no 30,000 uh, um, no Central 30, African dollars no no 30,000 Sefa um, so the the police officer who tried to get this money off me when I walked out he, he was shouting at me you still owe me money and I just said to him I don't owe you anything my friend and just took off because I already had my passport stamp but you know these these are these are um, the kind of things that you have to be prepared for because um, sometimes it does happen at borders whether it be in Africa or other countries, it happens all over. And when you've run into this, you don't pay. You, you try and do the best you can not to pay any sort of bribes, even if they're small. Yeah, exactly. You know, I um, my philosophy was, you know what, buddy, I have all the time in the world. Um, so let's see who gets bored first, because I can sit here for days. Because this is, this is the thing. Um, usually people don't have a lot of time. So... Uh, they can see that you're a bit annoyed or maybe nervous about having to get somewhere. Um, and then they will use that to get a bribe out of you. So they know you're nervous. So pay us and then it will go. It will be a faster process and then you can be on your way. And I learned this pretty early on and I, I would just, you know, remain calm and friendly at the, at the border posts. Um, something that worked in my favor, I think, was that obviously you couldn't see that I was a woman in all my riding gear. So when I would get to a border, people would only realize that I'm a, you know, a woman when I remove my helmet. And then they're so surprised that I think they kind of forgot. Um, even if they wanted to bribe me, I think they would just forget about it. They're so thrown off by it. <laughs> yeah, they, they're, so, they're so surprised. They don't know, um, you know, quite what to make of me usually they would kind of try and see if there are any other bikes uh, still on their way <laughs> and i'd have to say to them it's just me <laughs> and i think there were pros and cons to that um on the one hand i'm not a threat to anyone so they were more willing to help me than not and people were quite friendly and sometimes even quite protective of me so I think that helped a bit. Well, that's interesting. That sort of goes with that whole thing of the difference between traveling solo or traveling with a group that we've talked a lot about on this show at different times. Yeah, with a group, you tend to be treated differently. There's no doubt about it. But when you're when you're by yourself, you're definitely less of a threat and and definitely more apt to have interaction, aren't you, than yeah. if you had a whole bunch of people around with you. Yeah, definitely. People are far more open to approaching you if you're on your own. Um than, you know, as opposed to being uh, with a group. And I've seen it now after having done a lot of solo traveling. When I am with groups, riding with groups, um, I always notice that. Uh, I'm so used to people approaching me, but when I'm in a group, people don't approach you. So it's, yeah, it's very true. From Benin, you're going through Togo and Ghana. You're, you're staying right on the coast there and then up to the Ivory Coast. Is that what your plan was? Yep. So I am staying on the coast uh, from Benin, Togo, Ghana, into Ivory Coast. Uh, 
and then I fall stuck. So I get into the Ivory Coast and the border actually closed behind me. Uh, there was some civil unrest between Ghana and Ivory Coast at that time. So they closed the border behind me. And then the border with Liberia was closed as well. Uh, again, because of some, uh, I don't know, there, there was a lot of conflict between the two countries at the time. Um, and now I'm stuck because the only other option I have is to head up through Mali. And this was right at the time that uh, they had all the unrest in Timbuktu. They were breaking down temples. Um, so I was a bit nervous about traveling, traveling through Mali. And there was actually a South African man that got kidnapped right at that time. So I just took some time out to consider my options. Again, a local uh, motorcycle club took me. Um, so I, I was in contact with a friend of mine in Liberia, a South African geologist, and he just happened to be up in Liberia at the time. So it was great because he could give me some information on the situation in Liberia. Um, the other thing was that this was monsoon season, so it was heavy rains in that region. And a lot of the roads and bridges had washed away in Liberia, which made it even less of um, you know, a probability of me making it through the country. So in the end, after two weeks of you know, trying to figure out what, what I was going to do, I decided, you know what, I'm going to head up through Mali and just keep to the south of the country and just try and sneak through to to Senegal and when I got to, when I got to the border between uh, Ivory Coast and Mali the the border the, the customs officers um, actually had me sit down next to them and uh, they had me take out my map and the one guy said to me do you know where you're going and I said to him yeah I'm heading through Mali he had a pack of peanuts, and I remember he had this this uh, plastic bag with peanuts, and he kept giving me peanuts, you know, eat peanuts. <laughs> and, I, and he said to me, um, you know it's dangerous in Mali? And I said to him, yes, I know, but I have no choice. I have to somehow find a way to Senegal and eat more peanuts. And then, <laughs> but you know that you cannot travel through Mali on, on your own. And I said to him, it's okay. I know where I'm going. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, by now, the peanuts are done. And he says to me, okay, well, you know, I've tried my best. Um, I really hope you make it through Mali, but it's very dangerous. Just don't go there. Um, and it was interesting to me to, you know, this is one of the things that I learned in every country that I travel through. The one country will tell you the next country is more dangerous than the last. So it's... <laughs> So I said, so I'm, I'm sure I would be okay. They eventually led me through. And although I had planned to, you know, just shoot through Mali as quick as possible, three days flat, right through the country, um, I ended up staying there for about a month. Wow. Yeah. So I, um, in, in Bamako, in, in the capital, I stayed in this little nondescript hotel and my bike was standing downstairs. And I was sitting in the bar having coffee. And these three people came in that morning, um, sat down next to me. And I could hear from their accents that the one guy's an Australian guy. And the other two, I could definitely hear were South Africans. 
And the one guy turned to me and said to me, we saw this, this motorcycle standing downstairs. And obviously I had my South African registration number on it. Uh, and he asked me, have you seen the guy whose motorcycle is standing downstairs? And I looked at him and I was like, yeah, I'm the guy. <laughs> and he's like, oh my, and it turned out um, that they, they were a couple from South Africa who works for one of our mining companies and told me about one of the guys who works on the mine. Him and his dad did a motorcycle trip from Mali to, to the UK. And so they said to me, you know, you have to meet up with this guy. And I then made my way to this mine which is right on the border between Mali and Senegal and ended up staying there for about a month, um, just chilling with the guys and taking motorcycle trips around the country and absolutely loved it. Was there no problem with visas? Um, one of the things that I tried to sort out while I was in Mali was to get my visa for uh, Mauritania and for Morocco. Uh, I didn't need a visa for Senegal. So yeah, so the next two were Mauritania and Morocco. Um, initially, uh, I was refused my visa for Morocco, but whilst I was staying on this mine with these new friends of mine, the Australian guy that I met in the bar that day in the hotel, um, he had some connections with the Moroccan embassy and helped me to get my Moroccan visa. So in that time that I was there, my visas, I got to sort out my visas for Mauritania, Morocco, and an extension for my visa for Mali. So that was, yeah, so that was no problem. So it's surprising how much a lot of this has to do with who you know, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Very much so. But it was amazing how, you know, things just, it seemed like I kept meeting the right people at the right time, um, you know, in the right places en route. So it was pretty awesome. So again, your, your conviction that it's going to happen and you just find that things present themselves for you. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people would taste to, to that kind of thing happening on the road. So now you're headed for the desert. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I was very excited about getting into the Sahara Desert. So from Mali, I entered into Senegal. Um, I met up with some friends of mine in Sali, which is near Hambur. It's just south of Dakar. And of course, there was, um, you know, getting to Dakar on my Dakar, mm -hmm. um, which, was, which was quite a big thing. Uh, spent a night in Dakar, and then I headed off to the Mauritanian border the next day. Um, and then, so the plan was to cross into Mauritania, spend maybe three days traveling through Mauritania and then cross into Morocco. When I got to the Mauritanian border, uh, I know that amongst a lot of overlanders, this border, the Rosso border is also known as hell on earth. And I quickly realized why it was nicknamed, um, as such. And I think it's mainly because it's just such an overwhelming, uh, border to cross in terms of, you know, you have so many people. Um, the thing with border towns, you never know what to expect. You never know what you're going to get. And this is one of the borders where it's classic. Um, you know, there's a lot of poverty. Uh, people, you know, they, they will try and out of pure need for survival, um, get whatever they can off you. Mm -hmm. uh, certain, it was certainly... Uh, quite overwhelming for me being on my own because it was always tricky you know border I, I, I'll admit border days were my least favorite because it was quite tricky for me to leave my bike 
with all my things and have to go into um, have my passport stamps, you know, all my start all my paperwork, whatever needed to be done, um, and just hope that by the time I got out again, everything would still be there. And it always was. Yeah, it always was. Uh, I never got something stolen from me at any border. So, um, but what happened on, at, on this border is there's a ferry that you have to cross. Uh, so it's really a short one. It's, uh, you know, 10 minutes and you're across the border. So I had a fixer at this border that was organized by um, the, the, well, the CEO of the mine that I was staying at in Mali. And um, this was now during Ramadan. So things were going a bit slow, uh, you know, during the day. There were a lot of prayer times, so you had to wait for the guys to get back. And then um, I made it into Mali, and that my fixer then said to me, it was quite late, so I couldn't make it to the first town. Um, so I had to stay on the border, and there's only one hotel that you can stay in. And my fixer said to me he would bring me food later that evening, so you could only get food after about 8 p.m. Um, and he duly did bring me food to the hotel. But what happened then was, he came into my room, put down the food, the tray of food, and then locked the door behind him. And I realized, uh-oh, mm. um, you know, this is now a tricky situation. And, you know, people always ask me, did you carry any weapons with you on your trip? And, um, you know, I have a bit of a fascination for knives, um, not in a, in a weird way. I just... <laughs> and... Um, but... And and I had lot, you know friends giving me knives en route, uh, but I didn't have any of my knives on me, so that didn't help me at all. But luckily, because I had quite, I had some self-defense training before in in you know back home here in South Africa, so you know I was able to get the guy off me, and it was it was you know he attacked me physically, uh, but this was one of only two incidents on the entire trip. So luckily I was able to fight him off, uh, you know, chased him out of the hotel and never saw him again. But what that did was it caused for me not to, I didn't want to hang around in Mauritania. Um, so the next day I pretty much traveled from border to border in one day just because I wanted to get out of the country. I didn't feel safe there. Mm -hmm. So made it through Mauritania and then crossed no man's land, border crossing into Morocco um, and made my way across southern Morocco, which I absolutely loved, and then traveled up to the north and settled down in Rabat for a few days because I had friends there. Um, then, uh, then, I had, uh, then I had a problem. So this is where I had an issue with visas because... I couldn't cross into Algeria um, on account of the border having been closed for years. Um, so you have to cross to Europe and then cross back into onto mainland Africa. Problem was that I didn't have a Schengen visa to cross to Europe. Um, so they then advised me that I would have to return to my country of residence to, to obtain this visa. And it took me a month of trying to convince them otherwise before I realized that there was no way around it. Um, and I ended up having to then return back to South Africa to, to get the visa um, that would allow me to cross into Europe and then back into Africa. So you rode back or you flew down? No, I flew down. Um, so this, 
also obviously caused a bit of uh, there was a lot of paperwork that had to be filled out for me to leave my bike in Morocco and then you know fly out so it had to be put under custom seal um, and then I flew out back to South Africa had the the visas sorted out so I figured whilst I'm back I might as well just you know get all the visas that I need for the rest of the trip because I'm almost halfway now mm-hmm. um, so I got all the visas that I needed for the rest of the trip took me about I don't know, two three months to get all these visas and then I went uh, riding with a friend of mine uh, for the first time ever I rode pillion uh, so I was on the back of a bike and we were you know scouting some routes for for a tour of his and unfortunately um, it was wet and a bit muddy so he put the bike down um, but he put it down on my ankle and mm. I broke my my ankle and this necessitated uh, surgery the again the the funny part of that was that my um, insurance my medical insurance that I took out for the trip covered me for everywhere in the world except South Africa (laughs) so I flew all the way back home just to bend my ankle But I mean, it was it was okay. So I had the surgery, and then six months later, I was good to go and flew back to Morocco. Um, got the visas again <laughs> because by the time um, my ankle was ready to go, all my visas had expired. Oh, so all the work you put out for all those visas <laughs> gone. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was okay. So I just got the visas again, and then flew back to Morocco, and then I was able to to carry on the trip. Um, obviously, the stint through Europe was easy. Right, you go up into Spain and then you rode the whole way around to Italy and, and, then, yeah. and then get back over on the ferry? Yeah, so I crossed into Spain, um, which was fantastic. I met up with so many bikers, um, again, you know, with, with people all over Spain. And then France, Italy, the same. Um, I stayed with, uh, you know, bikers and friends that I'd met previously or friends that I had contact with all throughout Europe. So that was quite awesome. And and you're still going ahead on the internet and looking for bike clubs and contacting them for yeah. um, a local contact. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah, yeah. So I'm still doing this. Um, and that's how I got in contact with a, a club. Uh, now it's a big group on Facebook. So I got in contact with them and got quite involved with the group. Um, and they started out in Tunisia, but they have members throughout Northern Africa. So stretching from um, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and into, into Sudan. Uh, so when I was in Italy, I knew that now I needed to make a, you know, a crucial decision because this was now right at the height of the Arab Spring. Um, you know, it was, I think people might remember they had you know, the biggest protest, biggest um, march in history, 30 million people in Egypt. Um, so... I'm sitting there in Italy and I have to make a decision as to whether I'm going to try and make it down into Tunisia, cross Libya into Egypt, or whether I try and find a way around it. But, you know, it just, to me, it felt like uh, I would miss out a lot. And it felt a bit like I'd be cheating if I didn't at least try and make it, you know, through these these countries. Uh, Algeria refused my visa. It was the only country. Uh, so next was Tunisia, and then I bought my ferry t- ticket to Tunisia and crossed from Italy down 
back onto mainland Africa and into Tunisia. So um, I spent some time in Tunisia, which was amazing. Um, the One of the awesome things was that I had now made it from the most southern point in Africa to the most northern point, um, which is based in Tunisia, near Tunis. It's called Cap Blanc. And, um, yeah, I had made friends with the, the local um, motorcycle club. And one of the guys rode with me, took a you know five-day road trip throughout the country. And it was amazing to, to get to see all the sites and, um, you know, get to know the culture, but local people. Um, it ended up now it's one of my favorite countries that I traveled through. Um, so from Tunisia, I then had to try and get into Libya, which was really difficult because at the time, I think even now it would be, it would be, I don't know if it's even possible to get into Libya right now. Um, the only way I got into Libya was through the Libyan Motorcycling Federation um, put in a good word for me with the Minister of Tourism. And it was only through the minister um, sending me a personal invite into Libya that I was able to, to actually cross the border into Libya. And I remember crossing the border after Nigeria, this was the second time that I felt really nervous and I was crossing into Libya because I knew that, you know, the country was still very much at war and it was very unstable. Um, and when I crossed into the country, a group of riders from Tripoli had come to welcome me at the border. And so they rode in with me and we, the first thing I saw was uh, we passed a truck with a guy sitting on the back with an automatic rifle. And he started shooting off rounds into the air as a way of welcoming me into the country. <laughs> and the guys around me, you know, all their eyes just shot back at me to see how I would react. Um, and I just, you know, I just kind of indicated to them that it's okay. And later on said to them, as long as they're not aiming at me, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but something that's a bit of a culture shock, isn't it? If you're not used to that, yeah. that's got to send chills through your spine. Yeah, well, look, I very quickly realized that, um, you know, this was a different situation. And um, the reality of it all just hit me because, like I said, the country was still very much at war. And I realized that I would have to get used to shots and bombs going off around me, you know, all the time. Um, and this is the first and only time that I actually felt lonely on the trip because I was in a country that is not as liberal as its neighbors, um, you know, Tunisia and Egypt. And also people, you know, in, in Tunisia, I could communicate in French. Egypt, you can communicate in English. Um, in Libya, very few people actually speak any other language than Arabic. So it, it was a bit difficult for me. And like I said, they're, they're still not as liberal as um, the other countries. So being a woman traveling on my own, uh, you know, some nights in, in Tripoli, I would be out with the guys and we would go to grab a pizza in the midst of, you know, bombs and shots going off around you. And as soon as I get off my bike and I take off my helmet, everyone's eyes would shoot, um, you know, in my direction. And I could feel a bit of hostility because uh, obviously they're not used to something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So I felt, I, I, I certainly felt a bit out of place. 
Um, but even so, I mean, they made sure the the local motorcycling federation made sure that I was safe and escorted me through the country. They had guys riding with me to Tripoli. Um, from there, I had to make my way on my own to the other side of the country, uh, which was a bit nerve-wracking. But I made it to you know the e the border with Egypt um, safely, and then guys picked up from um, Benghazi rode with me to the border and then made sure that I crossed safely into Egypt. All this time, you're you're not camping. You're staying in accommodations? Yeah, I didn't camp through these countries. Uh, I felt it too risky. Um, so, yeah, I stayed in, in, in Libya. I was very fortunate because of the, um, the Minister of Tourism who now knew that I was traveling through the country. They put me up um, in hotels all along. So it was it was very kind. Oh, wow. Yeah. Same thing in Egypt. When I entered Egypt, um, it was at a time when the whole country was under curfew. So nobody was allowed out on the streets after 7 p.m. at night. And you literally had tanks and uh, military and barbed wire roll out onto the streets after 7 p.m. at night. But the again, uh, the Ministry of Tourism took me in and you know made sure that I, I was safe traveling throughout the country, put me up in hotels all the way, Cairo, down to the Red Sea, Luxor, Aswan. Um, I mean, they put me up in five-star resorts, which was insane. Jeez. Um, How did the Minister of Tourism get the information that you were riding through the country? Well, what happened pretty much is that the whole world was leaving Egypt and there was this one girl on a bike trying to get in. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone had What's left. wrong with this picture? Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, um, I could understand it because I remember sitting in Cairo um, looking at a television. I was sitting at, at a little coffee shop and I was looking at a television and I can't remember which news station I was watching. Um and the picture I was seeing on the television was of a protest happening and people, you know, um, pretty much stoning each other. But I was sitting right there where they were shooting that scene. And I was like, but what I'm seeing on the street is not really what's being shown on television, which happens a lot, isn't it? When you look at how media represents, you know, certain situations. And I could understand why the the country was in crisis because they felt like the whole world was showing that they were at war, but it's not really what was happening. So I think um, what happened was the the Ministry of Tourism used whatever means they could to show people that you know Egypt uh, it, they that it was still okay for people to come to the country and they were still open for tourism and that you would be safe. Obviously, there were certain areas you wouldn't go to, like in any other country, but it was okay. It was fine. And did they set you up with any sort of press junkets or anything like that? Um, yeah, they did. They did. So, um, yeah, quite a few. Quite a few. And like I said, they put me up in, in hotels throughout. Um, in Cairo, again, a local club, because they have a very big um, motorcycling community in Cairo and um, they got a big group together and we did a group ride to the pyramids which was really special and then I had guys ride with me down to the coast uh, from there okay from there I was on my own down to Luxor and then onto Aswan 
and then I got to take the famous ferry from Aswan to to Wadi Halfa in Sudan. It's really incredible how you've met one person, then another and another, and it seems like it's all connected through a chain of people looking to do good for you, looking to help you out as you go through your adventure. And it really says something about the people of the world in general, because you can go from country to country and find the same reception. It does. And, you know, I was saying to people, like, um, obviously I was running a blog um, on my website, and I um, posted about it, wrote about how... It was a bit like a human chain had developed around Africa. And, you know, word got round about um, what I was trying to do. And it was like people were, you know, kind of passing me on from one person to the next. And it made me realize in the end just how connected we are. You know, it really, especially in today's day and age with technology, we really do live in a global village. And I think in a way it does make it easier to travel. I'm sure you guys have had chats about that as well, how technology has had an effect on on traveling nowadays. Um, So it did make it easier in some way. But yeah, in the end, it made me realize just how connected we all are. Yeah, and some have pointed out that it's actually made it a little bit more difficult because uh, there were borders where you could get by with a, a smile and, and yeah. off you go, but now they're getting computers and they're, and they're requiring more information and, and collecting more information. So it's a double-edged sword of technology. So how did you end up getting back home from there? So um, so from Egypt, what happened is I took the ferry to Sudan, uh, make my way through Sudan, which was I really, really enjoyed Sudan. Um, the people were so friendly and so um, accommodating. Everywhere I went, you know, you would struggle to find someone that wouldn't offer you at least something to drink. Um, so I really enjoyed Sudan. From Sudan, I crossed into Ethiopia, which was one of the most beautiful countries I traveled through. Um, it's just uh, such a richly diverse country and the landscapes are just awe-inspiring so you have these lush green valleys and mountains rivers waterfalls it was really beautiful traveling through ethiopia what have the roads been like for you have you been traveling mainly highways have you hit a lot of dirt so i um i only started hitting dirt in ethiopia so i had a lot of dirt when i started off Namibia, Angola, Congo, um, Cameroon, uh, quite a few hairy, hair-raising moments, um, you know, muddy parts, that kind of thing. Then it was, then I was on um, asphalt all the way to Egypt, Sudan as well. They've got a new, brand new highway right through the country. Um, and then when I got into Ethiopia, I, I was getting bored of being on the main road the whole time. So I went off the main road and searched for back back roads, uh, which were far more interesting anyway. It's it's more quiet as well because the main road in Ethiopia is so busy. You have so many people and animals and you know children on the road. So it makes it um, a bit tiring because you're concentrating all the time to make sure you don't hit anyone or anything. So I started going off the main road, which I really enjoyed. Then I crossed into Kenya. And the northern part of Kenya, it's a stretch that used to be about five, six hundred kilometers. It's now down to just under 300 um, of, of the road known as Hell Road. <laughs> <laughs> so, because it's just endless corrugation. 
um, uh, yeah, it's known as Hal Road or the BMW Breaker, supposedly. <laughs> and this is just just continuous uh, <laughs> yeah, speed well, bumps, basically. Everyone breaks a shock breaker on this. Well, um, no, true to its name, only like thirty kilometers in this road, my my rear shock um, broke. So, <laughs> so I ended up riding the entire stretch without a rear shock breaker. <laughs> Where did you get that repaired? So then uh, once I got down into Nairobi, um, I met up with some friends that I I was able to stay with them. They were very kind to take me in, stay with them for about two weeks. And then a friend of mine in South Africa, also another traveler, uh, very generously um, said to me, he has a spare, a spare shock that I could have. And then I you know, fitted the shock and I was able to continue. So... And it, it was um, interesting to me. It was awesome how my mechanical skills had, you know, um, developed. <laughs> I'd gone from when I started out, never been on a bike, to now servicing my own bike and fitting, you know, parts to the bikes. It was amazing for me to see how I was able to actually do that by now. And at this point, as a new rider, you have to be very in tune with your bike. You've gotten the hang of riding. You've been riding a long time at this point. It's uh, it's pretty much something you're doing without thinking about, I'm sure. Yeah, well, by that point, you know, um, I knew when something was wrong on my bike just by um, the the sound and the feel of how the bike was running. So it was amazing how you get to know your motorbike. And I also, I serviced the bike myself, uh, you know, every 5,000 kilometers. And it was great. It's, it's something that I actually enjoy now. It's, it's um, mechanics. Another thing I, I discovered that I'm actually quite good at. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, from Kenya, I've been crossing into Tanzania. And um, my plan was to go from Tanzania to Mozambique and then cross back into South Africa. But there was some, um, there was a rebel group uh, that started up again in Mozambique. And by now, my friends had, um, you know, this joke saying, because uh, it seemed like everywhere I went, whatever next country was coming up, they, you know, some unrest would break out in the country. <laughs> and they would say, so where's Joe now? Um, she's in Tanzania. Okay, there's going to be unrest in Mozambique now. Or where is Joe? She's in Egypt. Okay, there's got, something's going to happen in Sudan. <laughs> And it always did. <laughs> so when I got to Tanzania, true enough, there was trouble in Mozambique. And I had to um, change my route a bit. And instead of just crossing into Mozambique right on the coast, I went through Malawi, uh, which was great because, you know, that wasn't part of the plan initially. But I ended up loving Malawi so much. Um, just an amazing country. Uh, it's it's a relatively small country, but just if you want to go on a holiday break and just you know relax next to Lake Malawi, that is that is fantastic. So I spent a few days next to the lake, and then uh, crossed into my last country en route, which was Mozambique, and then travelled down to to the South African border, and um, it was quite a big moment uh, when I got back to the border across from Mozambique into a, a small country country um, called Swaziland and then got to the Mozambican border and a friend in 
in um, in Mozambique and Maputo actually rode with me to the border. And when I got there, there was a group of friends on the other side who'd come to welcome me back into South Africa. And I remember when I got to the border and I handed in my passport for, you know, that final stamp, having my passport stamp for the very last time, um, the officer stamped my passport and looked up at me and said, welcome home, Joe. <laughs> And I just burst out into tears. <laughs> it was such a huge moment. Yeah. And how long did the entire thing take you by the, by the time you're back home? So by the time I got back into South Africa, it was, um, yeah, it was about 18 months. Well, 17 and a half months. In the end, it was 18 months. And that's probably not at all what you planned on. What was your original plan? Well, well, yeah, I, I gave myself um, two years. So, well, actually, I gave myself, I think, three years on the bicycle and then um, narrowed it down to two years on the bike. And, yeah, it took me, it only took me 18 months. So you planned three years. You managed to do it on the motorcycle in 18 months. So you're way ahead of time now. <laughs> you've, got, you've got some free time <laughs> in life. What have you been doing since then? <laughs> yeah, well, since, so, yeah, when, since I finished the trip, um, it's not been a year and I, I have itchy feet. I'm thinking, <laughs> what's the next trip? Um, I, I've been doing a lot of um, training, actually. Since I finished my trip, I started learning how to ride a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Officially. <laughs> Officially, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been really involved with um, my local BMW Motorrad. And I've been doing a lot of off-road training. And this really is where my passion lies. Um, I love the trainings I've done uh, with our local off-road academies for country tracks. I did three intermediate courses now, and I've just become the first female in South Africa to have done the advanced off-road course. Um, and uh, the plan is to become an off-road instructor eventually. Well, I understand you're also looking to enter into the BMW GS Challenge. Yeah, so there's the, the GS Trophy, and this year it was in Canada. Um, they had 16 participating nations this year, so that's quite awesome. So it happens every two years. Um, they've never had a female rider actually compete in, in the trophy, and I'm hoping to get involved in that, though I've just been, I've actually just announced it today. Is uh, I've just been appointed the first ever female brand ambassador for BMW South Africa. Congratulations on that! That's great. Thank you. Yeah, that's been that's been really cool. And uh, BMW flew me over to Germany earlier this year. Um, they had me speaking at the Motorrad Days in in Germany, and um, I started up an initiative earlier this year, and it's just absolutely growing uh, like crazy so it's called the bmw g's girls and it is basically now the the biggest and um maybe one of the only female focused global initiatives for bmw that's great that, and when you say local you're talking south africa no i'm i'm talking um globally so i have i have um girls all over the world um helping me run the group and the page and we're planning um rides and training camps throughout the world next year starting next year fantastic yeah yeah so i'm doing my um international instructors training in february next year and then hopefully 
uh, after that, I'll get to run some of these training camps in Europe and planning the States and Canada as well. So you're going to be traveling around doing uh, instructionals around the world, ideally, and that may lead as well to adventures in between, I assume? Yeah, so I figure I'll just um, marry all my different passions. So the idea is to travel around the world and um, present these training camps for the girls because um, there really is a big need for it. And uh, it's great to see how how the girls all over the world are really enthusiastic about it. So the idea is to travel, tell, um, you know, I'll share my story with the girls and we'll have these training camps with rider training. And also I'd like to then um, uh, identify, you know, female riders that uh, might be uh, GS Trophy material because I think at some point um, BMW is talking about getting more girls involved with the GS Trophy in the future. With all this you've done, have you thought of putting a book together or is that in the works? That is in the works. Right now I'm in the process of sending off manuscripts to potential publishers. Um, I actually have a few friends in the UK trying to help me find a publisher there or, or you know, whoever might be interested. So the book is definitely in the pipeline. Hopefully I'll get to publish it next year. Um, so very excited about that as well. Well, we look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. That should be fun. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, with the book, I really hope to partially have it, you know, the story, obviously. But I also want to give people some practical information on, um, you know, what you would need to travel through these countries and on my experiences on, on the road conditions and uh, the different borders, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, and you certainly have had your experience with the borders. That, that's a lot of borders that you've crossed. Do you know how many it is? <laughs> um I oh I would have to count it, but yeah. it's, it's a lot. Well, it was in the end. In the end, it was um, what I traveled was twenty eight countries. That's including Spain, France, and Italy. So it's twenty five African countries and forty five thousand kilometers and eighteen months. What advice would you give to anyone out there who's thinking of doing something similar? What advice? Um, you know, I always say to people, number one, um, one of the, the main questions I always get to people is they don't know where to start. And I always say to people, just start somewhere. You know, it doesn't matter whether it is to start planning your route. If you know, if you have an idea of what you want to do, um, just start at one end and work your way through. And it doesn't matter how big or small your dream may be. I mean, you don't have to go riding around Africa. It might just be traveling to a, a town that you haven't been to before. The main thing is just to do it because um, more often than not, we put it off because we have excuses like, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough experience. Um, and these are all just excuses in the end. So just just go and do it and have an open mind and always carry a smile with you. And what about for women in particular who are thinking of doing something like this? And I'm thinking safety aspect here because it's the first thing that pops into my mind. Yeah, I think for women, I would say, you know, um, be prepared, uh, but don't, don't, don't let it put you off. Um, I mean, if you want to travel somewhere, be smart about it and trust your instincts. But I mean, it's, it's very possible. Look, I've shown um, it's possible to travel just by anywhere um, on your own as a woman. But in the end, you have to be smart about it. And, um, and yeah, I wasn't always <laughs> that prepared. I think I was lucky. But uh, I would say, yeah, just just 
prepare as well as you can. Your website is uh, joerust.com and people can go there and find out more about you, what you've done and what you're still doing because you have a lot on the go right now, which is absolutely fantastic. Joe, thank you very much for coming on Adventure Rider Radio and we'll have to have you back again. Thank you for having me. It was great. It was really awesome and I hope to chat to you guys again sometime in the future. I've been speaking with Yolandi Rust, or Joe Rust. At joerust.com, you can go there and check out more of what she's doing and what she's done. she got a great story there. Well, that about wraps it up for Adventure Rider Radio this time. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Oh, I know you've heard me say it before. You want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Head over to iTunes and give us a rating or drop by our website and send us a comment. I want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. We've been getting a lot of feedback and it's been great. It helps shape the coming shows. So if you have an idea, drop by the website and let us know. Also, if you know someone who you think would be good for the show, drop by the website, fill out a form, let us know. Send us the details. Now, for those of you who think we're doing a good job and you want to give something back, drop by the website, click on the donation button, send us a donation. And thanks for downloading Adventure Rider Radio. JoeRust.com and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This is Adventure Rider Radio and this is Nick Sanders from Wales in Great Britain.